Sometimes we know we should worship God, but we don't feel he's worthy of our worship. Some of us at some point in time have wondered if God is even with us. Where is God in my pain and suffering, we might ask. Some of us have wondered that we know what God's word says, but sometimes we don't see him acting on his word that we know. Some of us have prayed for healing from our sicknesses, but were not healed and wondered why doesn't God answer our prayers. Those are tough scenarios with tough questions, but here today in our passage, we get some answers to some of those tough questions. John the disciple tells us a story that's not included in any other gospel. It's a short little 12 verse story kind of added at the end of this chapter four that you might not be familiar with. But it's a royal official who's serving in Herod's court that hears about Jesus and travels to Jesus to ask Jesus to heal his son. So in our time together, we're going to look at the setting of this miracle, then the sign that occurs and what's involved in it, and then the significance and why John includes it in his gospel. So first, the setting of this miracle is described starting in verse 43. It says, after the two days, uh, Jesus went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. For when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they themselves also were at the feast. Now, if you're like me, when you read some of the Gospels, you have to pull out the map in the back of your Bible to figure out where is he going, how far away is it, you know, what's along the way, what's the elevation change. And I want to give you a brief little memory trick that will help you as you read the Gospels, and that helps me. There are two main regions that are talked about in the Gospels. There's Galilee and then Judea. Now, this is really deep if you can stay with me, okay? I always remember Galilee is in the north and Judea is in the south because G comes before J in the alphabet. Okay, you got it? When you go to lunch and they ask you, what did you learn at church today? Just tell them we talked about the alphabet, okay? <laughs> but Galilee is in the north, Judea is in the south, G comes before J in the alphabet. That'll help you kind of orient you each time. And there are two main lakes that are often talked about in the Gospels. There's the Sea of Galilee, which is a lake in the north. And then there's the Dead Sea, which is in the south. And I always remember that the Dead Sea is in the south because the water goes from Galilee in the north through the Jordan River, and then it ends up in the Dead Sea, and it doesn't go anywhere else. It just dies in the Dead Sea, all right? So there you go. That's your memory trick that'll kind of help orient you each time you come across these, these places. So that's in verse 43, kind of orients us to the geography but in verse 45, we learn about Jesus's ministry here. We see how Jesus's popularity and his ministry are growing. When he came to Galilee in verse 45, it says, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. So in Jerusalem, Jesus had been doing these miracles, these signs, John doesn't tell us about them, but it just says he was doing these miraculous signs and lots of people were coming to Jesus. The crowd was growing because of the amazing signs Jesus was doing. 
And here in our passage, starting in verse 46, we see another sign, a sign that starts with the traveling trip made by a royal official who had been serving in Herod's court. And we read about his trip in verse 46. It says, the beginning of the sign starts with this royal official's trip. It says, therefore he came again, which is talking about Jesus. Therefore Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now the text mentions two locations, Cana where Jesus went, and then Capernaum where the royal official was from. And the city of Capernaum was a fishing village next to the Sea of Galilee, but Cana was up in the hill country and it was 18 miles away. And because Capernaum is near a body of water, it's below sea level, and then Cana is above sea level. So this royal official, he's about to travel 18 miles, and he's going to have to ascend 1,000 feet up to go to Jesus. And 18 miles is about the same distance from Walmart in Moses Lake to the other Walmart in Ephrata. If you've been done that trip, you can just imagine a six-hour walk going uphill to get to Jesus. And who is this royal official that we read about? The text calls him a royal official, which means he was one of Herod's officers in Herod's court. And there are many different Herods talked about in the Gospels. This is Herod Antipas, which was a guy that was ruling over the region of Galilee. He was called a tetrarch. He had this area. He's kind of like a governor. And that's who this royal official likely served under, was Herod of Antipas. And if you remember Herod the Great from the gospel stories or the, the Christmas stories we read, the Herod the Great that tries to kill Jesus and kills all the, the boys, that was this guy's dad. So the royal official works for the son of the guy that tried to kill Jesus. If you can see kind of where we're going with this story a little bit. But as a royal official, he was probably wealthy, influential, he had power and privilege. And he was used to having people do things for him. But this issue is so important that he starts walking to go see Jesus. He was desperate and he was in need. And he goes to beg for his son's life. And he makes that trip. And he arrives to Jesus. We read about this conversation that occurs in verses 47 through 49. Where it says, when the royal official heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And we see this fervent request that this royal official makes of Jesus. In verse 47, it says he was imploring him to come down, which is a good translation. To implore means to beg earnestly or to beg desperately. The translation that the, a lot of the Baptist churches use, the Holdman Christian Standard Bible, says that Jesus pleaded for his son's life. Or if you have the NIV or NLT, it says that, that the royal official begged for Jesus's help. And that's what this man's doing. He's begging and pleading for Jesus to help his son. And he kept on begging because the son was at the point of death, it says. It wasn't just the 24-hour flu bug or a cold or some allergies. 
The boy was about to die, and that leads this royal official to go to Jesus. And that gives us an important lesson here in verse 48. The royal official asks for help, but Jesus replies, saying that they just want signs and wonders. They won't believe anything. Jesus is condemning the people for their stubborn refusal to believe in him without miracles. There were many looky-loos that were coming to Jesus, and this man, Jesus kind of implies, represents all the people that are just coming to Jesus because of the great things he can do. These people were looking for the spectacular. They wanted to be with Jesus simply because of the sensational things he was doing. And that reminds us, and the implication for us is that we need to place our faith in Christ because he is God, not because of what he gives us. We need to place our faith in Christ because he's God, not just because of what he gives us. We don't follow God because it's the cool thing to do or because it's cultural and everyone else does. In Texas, we had to battle this a lot when you talk to people in Texas because there was kind of four values of Texans when I lived there. God, country, uh, God family, country music, and beer. It's kind of the four, four deals, right? To be a Texan just kind of meant you're, you're a Christian, right? But when you're doing ministry, part of the battle was like, okay, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? How does that mean you live? What does that mean you do with your money? Right? We don't follow God for us because it's cool and hip. We don't worship God because he gives us what we want. We don't worship God because the rest of our family does. We don't worship God just because he meets our needs. In the newspaper, they print the Frank and Ernest cartoon every day. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Frank and Ernest, these two guys that are always on these interesting adventures and have this interesting kind of angle they're trying to work. And this one I clipped weeks ago. It says, adopt a highway program, sign up here. So Frank and Ernest go to the counter to sign up for a highway that they're gonna adopt. They tell the guy, we'd like to adopt Easy Street. Okay. We don't worship God because it's easy or because it's a smooth ride. We worship him because he is God of the universe. He created us, he guided us, and he loves us. We worship him because it's the appropriate response when we learn who he is. So Jesus tells them, you all just want a sign. And then in verse 49, it's interesting. The royal official doesn't argue with them, doesn't defend himself. He just asks again. He just keeps asking for help with Jesus. And then we see the healing that occurs in the first half of verse 50. It says, Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. Go, your son lives. So the royal official, he's been talking with Jesus, thinking he needs to get Jesus and bring Jesus back to Capernaum to heal his son. Maybe he, he was a man of means and wealth and power, so I wonder, maybe he brought a donkey and told Jesus, you can ride a donkey back, or even a horse, or a chariot, and said, Jesus, you can take a nap while you ride the chariot to come back. I wonder some of the ways he might have enticed Jesus to come. Jesus, I've got the new season of NCIS on Netflix. You can binge watch. This is an excuse for you to binge watch. Just come heal my son while you're in the chariot. But when Jesus heals the son from 18 miles away, it tells us that Jesus can reach us regardless of how far away we are from him. 
Distance doesn't make a difference. And when he reaches us, he has the power to save our soul or to heal our hurts for us. To save our soul, it doesn't matter if we went off to college, we were addicted to drugs, if we don't pay our taxes, if we don't recycle our Dr. Pepper cans, he can still reach us where we are. No matter how we are away from him, and it's often when someone is so far away from God, farther than they ever have been, that that's when Jesus chooses to reach out to them. And that's true for your family members. No matter how far they are from God, you never want to give up on them. Still love them. Still pray for them. Still pursue them with all your heart, just as Jesus pursued you when he saved you. And if we're a Christian, it's good to remember that Jesus can heal our hurts that we've been through. Maybe you were married to a husband that had an affair, or he was addicted to drugs, or he abandoned you or abused you. You had to go through a nasty divorce because of all of it, and you've never been able to kind of get over it. Living life feels like you're walking around with weights on your ankles, but Jesus, as he comes into your life, can help to heal your hurt. Maybe you had a job you loved and you felt it was what you were meant to do. You were good at it. You did everything you were supposed to, but then you got laid off. Nothing you could have done would have prevented you from getting laid off. And you wonder why would something like that happen? But Jesus can help heal your hurts. It takes time. It takes work, but he will help you forgive those people and mend your broken heart and your discouraged spirit. So we've seen this trip the man makes, the conversation between him and Jesus, the healing that occurs of his son. Now there's a return that's about to happen. Starting in the second half of verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. As he was now going down, and down meaning he's going toward Capernaum, it's a downhill walk. As he was going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives, and he himself believed, and his whole household Here, Jesus tells this man to go. And this isn't what that royal official was expecting. He had traveled to Jesus to get him, to bring him to his son. He thought Jesus would need to be with his son. But then Jesus says, go, your son lives. Now the royal official is faced with a dilemma. Does he trust Jesus at his word and start walking? Or does he further insist on proof for Jesus that he healed his son? It's not like he can call or anything like that to verify Jesus's words. The only way to make sure his son was okay to was to start that 18 mile walk, that six hour walk back home. And he trusts Jesus. Jesus says his son will be all right. And he trusts Jesus's words. And that reminds us as we read this and try to apply it to our lives, sometimes we place our trust in God's word even when we don't see his work. Sometimes we have to trust his word even when we don't see his work. We need to trust God and what he tells us is true. Sometimes it doesn't include evidence. There's some examples in the Bible for us. 
of what it means to trust his word. A few encouraging ones I pulled out this week. One is when God tells us, I will love you forever. Romans 8 says, For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor anything present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I will love you forever, is what he tells us. Even when we don't feel that love or see that love, we need to trust God's word. He also tells us, I will never leave you. Deuteronomy, Moses tells the people as they're about to enter the promised land, he says, the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear to be dismayed. Another thing it's good to trust in for God's word is when he tells us, I will return to get you. John 14 says, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. Now, those are things we might know in our head, but we don't always feel in our hearts. And just like this royal official knew what Jesus said, he didn't quite see it. He still trusted Jesus and walked back to his son, just like we have to sometimes trust his word, even when we don't see his work in front of us. And I don't want to move on from this little story here without talking about healing in today's time. Healing and health problems are a difficult topic. And whenever we talk about praying for someone's healing, we need to remember that sickness was not part of God's original plan for creation. Illness only entered the world because of man's sin, and now God works within the parameters of that problem that man created. So we pray for people in their healing, and I think we can organize people's healing into a couple of categories. Sometimes we pray for healing of someone, and that prayer aligns with God's will, and he heals them. We pray for their healing, and that happens to also be God's will that they are healed. Now, sometimes they get healed miraculously right now. Sometimes it takes years or decades. Sometimes they're heal, healed in the way we thought, or sometimes God uses a new avenue and heals them. But when we pray for someone's healing, sometimes it aligns with God's will and they are healed. But sometimes we pray for someone's healing and they're not healed. It doesn't match with God's will that he has. And this is a tough one for us to understand and accept. And I think there's three explanations for why God sometimes does not answer our prayers to heal someone. One, it reminds us that God is God and we are not God. Sometimes we ask for things and God says no. And as believers that follow him, we have to learn to accept that because if God did every single thing we asked him to do, we would be the God and he would not be the God because we answer to him, he doesn't answer to us. So sometimes when we pray for healing and he doesn't answer that prayer, it's just a simple reminder to us that he's God and we are not God. A second reason sometimes people are not healed when we pray for them is that it teaches us something new. 
Marcus Dodds in his commentary on this story says, circumstances are in general much better educators of men and women than any verbal teaching. Sometimes God has a lesson or a character trait he wants to develop in us and he uses the circumstances we're in to grow us and mold us into a believer with stronger faith because of the experiences that he's allowed us to go through. A third reason sometimes God doesn't heal people we pray for is it makes us more reliant on him. When we pray for people's healings, but they're not healed and it doesn't match his will, it makes us more reliant on him. And this was the message of the Apostle Paul that he tells us about the extreme pain and suffering that he had in his life. He calls it a thorn in his flesh. In his last letter to the believers in Corinthians, he says, There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, when I am weak, then I am strong. If you're familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata, uh, she was a 17-year-old girl that went to go dive into the Chesapeake Bay and she misjudged the depth of the water. And this was in, I believe, 1968, back before a lot of the medical advances we have now. And she dove into the water, hit a rock on her head, and instantly became a quadriplegic. She can't use her arms or anything. She has to use her teeth. And she writes in a book that I referred to recently. Uh, she's still alive. She's been a quadriplegic for more than half a century now. And she writes this about healing and what she wants to ask God when she gets to heaven. She says, I hope in some way I can take my wheelchair to heaven. With my new glorified body, I will stand up on resurrected legs and I will be next to the Lord Jesus. And I will feel those nail prints in his hands. And I will say, thank you, Jesus. He will know I mean it because he will recognize me from the inner sanctum of sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. He will see that I was the one who identified with him in the sharing of his sufferings. So my gratitude will not be hollow. And then I will say, Lord Jesus, do you see that wheelchair over there? Well, you were right. When you put me in it, it was a lot of trouble. The weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. I do not think I would ever have known the glory of your grace were it not for the weakness of that wheelchair. So I thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. And I like this last part. She says, now, Jesus, if you like, you can send that thing off to hell. <laughs> and I think she's talking about more than just physical healing in that story, in that testimony.
So when the man returns, the royal official returns, or as he's walking back and he meets his slaves, and they realize that Jesus has healed this boy at the same time Jesus said it, we learn the whole household gets saved. It says the royal official believed and everyone in his whole household. And that's a strong reminder for us that, that we should never underestimate the power we can have on others, right? We can never underestimate the power of a godly parent to affect the life of a child. Because of this father's actions, the whole man's family believed in Jesus. Their future residence of perpetual punishment in hell was switched to eternal life in heaven with Jesus because of his desire to go to Jesus and because of what they saw Jesus do. And it says they believed and were saved. And for us, we need to never underestimate how the actions of a parent might affect children that they have. And that doesn't have to just be your child. It can be a grandchild, a nephew, a niece, someone younger than you that you're related to, whether officially or even unofficially, an unofficially adopted child or grandchild or niece or nephew. And there was a point in my life when if you asked me, I probably would tell you I wasn't a Christian as an adult. I'm not sure if I would have identified myself as a believing Christian. But I have many memories of my mom still walking with me. I remember her giving me some Christian books. I liked rap music, of all things, back then. <laughs> and she gave me Toby Mac CD, right? I still remember, sorry, not CD, cassette tape. It was a Toby Mac cassette tape. Still remember that. I remember once sending me an email around Easter time describing what Jesus had done for us. And I saw that lived out with her and my younger sister. I remember every Wednesday night, my mom would take my little sister to the Awana program at our church. And as my sister got older, uh, youth group was on Sunday nights. She would take my sister to youth group. And as I got older and moved in with my dad for, or my parents for a period of time, I remember my dad taking me to his men's Bible study at church. A bunch of these tough dudes that I had grown up around, but they were reading their Bible, talking about their faith in Jesus, and it was cool to see. I remember watching football games with my dad, and he'd say, you see that guy, Mike Singletary? He's a good Christian man. He speaks at Promise Keepers conferences. Our actions as fathers, mothers, aunts, uncles, grandmas, grandpas, or unofficially adopted mothers and fathers have powerful effects on the eternal lives of children. It's not easy to raise kids. You're going to make mistakes, but it's okay. And with God's help and grace, we can impact them in a way that affects their salvation forever. And we need to remember that. So John, the guy that writes this gospel, wraps it up with a little note at the end in verse 54, and he describes the significance of this sign for us. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Now John calls this a second sign. We know Jesus has done lots of miracles before this. The Gospels record 35 different miracles Jesus does. And in John chapter 2, it says Jesus was doing lots of miracles and lots of people. So this is just the second sign that John decides to record based in the region of Galilee. 
for us. And this has been John's way of trying to present to us in these first four chapters how Jesus is God, how he is God's son. And he's used all these different people from different walks of life to show us as readers how Jesus is God's son and how Jesus is God. He started with John the Baptist, and John the Baptist points to Jesus and says he's the Messiah. Then some of the disciples of John the Baptist, they start following Jesus because he's the Messiah. Then at a wedding in a small little group of people, these servants that see water turned into wine, they learn about how Jesus is God. Then at the temple, Jesus shows up. He drives out the money changers and the animal sellers and says, my spiritual kingdom is better than your earthly religious stuff. And then Nicodemus, this religious leader and leader of religious men, approaches Jesus. And we learn from Nicodemus that Jesus is God. And then a complete opposite story, John presents to us a Samaritan woman that nobody wanted to talk to or have anything to deal with. She points us to Jesus as God's son. And here, this royal official, he's the seventh different presentation to us that John makes about how Jesus is God. So as we wrap up our time together, I'll just ask you four questions and then we'll pray for our time together. Four questions from this, this story. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ because he's God or because of what he gives you? Two, has Jesus reached you where you are to save your soul or to heal your hurts? Three, are you trusting God's word even when you don't see his work in your life? And four, how are you as an official, biological or unofficial, Dad, mom, grandma, grandparent, aunt, uncle, how are you affecting the eternal life of those children in your life? Let's pray. God, thank you for allowing us to get to gather here. What a blessing we have to get to enjoy a place where we can safely open your word to talk about what it means for us because life is hard life is difficult sometimes we have answers we have questions we don't have answers for but thank you for a place where we get to discuss those together as a church family thank you for the the strength of this royal official and him doing all he could to heal his son and the lesson it gives for us in our lives that are trying to navigate the world we live in, and how to live a Christian life today. So we pray for these people as they go about their weeks. Walk with them and be with them. We pray for protection in all the people in Ukraine right now in the neighboring countries. That you would place your protection over them. And whatever it might look like, we pray that you could use this in some way to point people to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.